0: I feel like the way we structure education in schools and universities all over the world can be a little misleading. We tend to split lessons up into these discrete subjects. So in high school, I went from English to biology to journalism to calculus. That kind of compartmentalization is probably necessary just for organization and clarity. But again, it's misleading. Subjects overlap and they often don't easily break down into distinct categories. But no subject is harder to compartmentalize than history. That's because history is really the study of everything. It's probably why I love it so much. I've long believed that you can't satisfactorily understand literature, math, politics, philosophy, or just about any subject unless you're able to understand it in context. In order to appreciate what we now know, we have to understand how we came to know it. Science is the perfect example of this. I remember being bored out of my mind in high school biology until we started talking about Darwin's voyages on the Beagle. Or this humble, disciplined monk named Gregor Mendel who carefully studied crops of pea plants. I suddenly became fascinated because I realized these ideas weren't just words in a textbook. They were ideas men and women had to fight and work for and earn. These ideas tend to come piecemeal, one small step at a time. Once in a while, though, humanity can produce a person capable of radical new ways of viewing reality. Their paradigms can completely upend our understanding of, and relationship with, the world around us. These thinkers can come from the most unassuming places. In 1905, a bored government employee in Switzerland was staring out the window of his office building, pondering the mysteries of the universe the insights he gained in the long hours of quiet contemplation overturned centuries of conventional thinking and laid the foundation for the modern world. Over time, he refined his theories until he gave us one of the most profound and insightful ideas the world has ever known. This week, we backtrack 101 years to March 20th, 1916 and the publication of Albert Einstein's General Theory of Relativity. Hey, welcome to Backtrack History. My name is Stu. So today, of course, we're going to be speaking about Albert Einstein. Just to give you a little background on who he was, Einstein was born March 14th, 1879 in Ulm, Germany, to a family of Ashkenazi Jews, though they weren't really practicing. Shortly after he was born, his family moved to Munich, where he would spend most of his years growing up. Interestingly, Einstein did not learn to speak until he was about three years old. He was a thoughtful, contemplative child, but he was often resentful of authority figures and especially the regimented approach the teachers at his local school would use in education. He did not, as is sometimes popularly believed, fail math or any other subject. He was, in fact, a pretty good, if kind of unremarkable, student. He didn't quite get straight A's, but he virtually got all A's and B's, for example. Math and science were, of course, his best subjects, which is unsurprising considering the fact that by the time he was 15... Einstein had mastered differential calculus, mostly self-taught. At the age of 17, with the blessing of his father, he renounced his German citizenship in order to avoid conscription or the draft. He enrolled at Zurich Polytechnic, a college in Switzerland. While there, he befriended the only female student at his school, a Serbian woman named Mileva Maric. Maric, too, was fascinated with physics, and in time the two struck up a romantic relationship. While at the Polytechnic, Einstein attended class irregularly. He maintained this resentment he had of the teachers and the rigidity of their teaching styles, and worse, he failed to pay proper deference to them. When he was in class, he often daydreamed and just generally didn't pay attention. Einstein's daydreams, as we'll see, were wildly different than yours or mine. These hours of inward pondering produced some of the most profound insights into the universe ever produced by the human race, but at the time, it managed to alienate his professors who might have otherwise helped him on a career path. He graduated in 1900, leaving the polytechnic with a teaching certificate and good, though again, unremarkable grades. I think part of the reason it's been popularly taught that he failed at school was that his performance in school stands so against our expectations of him given our understanding of what he eventually accomplished. If someone had thought to ask Einstein's teachers at the time which of their students was destined for great things, it is highly unlikely that this expatriated German dreamer would have made their list. Einstein's sweetheart Mileva, unfortunately, failed her own exams and so didn't graduate with the rest of her class. But the two maintained their budding romance. In 1902, while she was visiting her family in Serbia, Maric gave birth to Einstein's daughter, who she named Liesel. I cannot pronounce that, Liesel, Liesel, it's like Liesel with an R at the end, so however you pronounce that. Because Einstein and Marich were unmarried, they quickly and discreetly put the baby up for adoption. Einstein never met the baby. This wasn't actually even discovered until historians were going through some of their correspondence in the early 1990s, so we don't know much about the situation or how Marich and Einstein responded emotionally. I can only imagine it was devastating. Maleva returned to Switzerland shortly thereafter to be with Einstein, and in 1903, the two of them were married. A year later, Maleva gave birth to their first son, Hans Albert Einstein, and she became a housewife. For nearly two years after graduating, Einstein maintained an extremely frustrating search for a teaching job and kept coming up empty-handed. Finally, he took a job as a low-level bureaucrat at the Federal Office for Intellectual Property in Bern, Switzerland. It was the government's patent office. He was hired as assistant patent examiner third class. A few years into his employment, he applied for promotion to assistant patent examiner second class, but was rejected. In the explanation, his superior said that he would be reconsidered once he, quote, fully mastered machine technology, unquote. Work at the patent office was, as you might expect, really easy and pretty boring for Einstein. Many of the patents that passed across his desk were of new electric devices and consistently required him to think and understand electric signals and the way electricity was used in mechanical, synchronized ways. These concepts were kept in the forefront of his mind in the hours of downtime he enjoyed in his job, and it seems like he had a lot of downtime. It's a good bet that the consistent consideration on electricity and its properties helped to spur some of the ideas he'd have later on. Einstein became good friends with a co-worker named Michele Beso. Beso became the sounding board for Einstein's scientific pondering. When the workday ended, instead of going home to Maléva, Einstein would often follow Beso to his house and continue to pontificate about various problems in scientific understanding of the universe. Most scientists, at the dawn of the 20th century, were fairly confident they had figured just about everything out. One of the leading physicists in the world at the time was a man named Max Planck, who was soon to become closely tied to Einstein. When Planck was first considering a career in physics, a mentor tried to dissuade him, telling him there was nothing but tidying up to be done in the field, and that there really weren't any large mysteries left to solve. Gratefully, Planck ignored the advice and started lending his own profound insights into physics. Despite this general feeling that the world had basically been figured out, there were still some mysteries to solve mainly because a couple of recent experiments didn't really make sense. For over two centuries, the gospel of science had been centered on the insights of Sir Isaac Newton, who happened to be Einstein's hero. Newton had published a profound book called Principia Mathematica, which had effectively become scientific scripture. It's filled with some of the most profound insights ever offered to science. Okay, so this can be maybe a little heavy for our purposes, but stick with me here for a second. Central to Newton's insights were laws of motion, the kind you've heard about ad nauseum in school. Ideas like every action has an equal and opposite reaction, an object in motion tends to stay in motion until it's acted on by another force, and so on. These ideas gave scientists a universal way to understand the way things moved. Newton was also able to establish some of the mathematics behind gravity, and establish how the orbits of the planets around the sun worked. He offered no real explanation for what gravity actually was, though. He simply theorized that an object with mass exerted gravity in relation to its mass. The bigger the thing, the more it pulled. A natural conclusion drawn from Newton's laws was the idea of relative velocities. To better explain this, let's turn to a thought experiment of our own. So imagine you are in, let's say, the Millennium Falcon. And let's say, for sake of example, you're sitting next to Chewbacca. (laughs) Now, imagine I'm sitting in a space station looking out the window as you and Chewbacca are flying straight toward me. You want to mess with me a little bit, so you decide to put on a spacesuit, step outside the Millennium Falcon, and throw an egg at my window and scare me to death. Let's say to make things easy that you guys are flying 100 meters per second directly toward me. You are an amazing pitcher, so when you throw this egg through space, you throw it at 100 meters per second. So, because you threw your egg at 100 meters per second while you were flying at 100 meters per second, to me, sitting still in space, the egg seems to be flying at me at 200 meters per second. But to you, traveling on board the speeding Millennium Falcon, even though the egg is actually flying at 200 meters per second, it only seems to be moving away from you at 100 meters per second, just as if you'd thrown it standing still. All right, you still with me? That's Newtonian physics for you. It's decently straightforward. It's basically the idea of those dreaded high school math questions that you got, the kind that said, if Barbara leaves from San Antonio traveling 80 miles per hour, and Bob leaves Albuquerque at 50 miles per hour, how long until you go insane? Yeah, that kind of nonsense is totally Newtonian-based physics. And it works great. At least it works great until you start trying to understand how light works. Scientists had long understood that light acted as a wave, not unlike sound. To a scientist, waves meant vibrations, so, in order to account for how light actually traveled anywhere, scientists theorized that space was made up of a substance that allowed light to travel through it. The way sound vibrations cause sound waves to move through the air, or the way ripples move across ponds. To scientists, there needed to be some kind of substance that light needed to travel through, so they theorized there was something called the luminiferous ether, a substance that made up all of space. Now, don't stress out too much about remembering or understanding the concept of luminiferous ether, because it doesn't exist. But to the scientific world at the time, it absolutely existed. That was until some men came along and started to throw wrenches into Newton's work. The first one of these problematic guys was a Scottish physicist named James Clerk Maxwell. Maxwell specialized in electromagnetic radiation, and he had this crackpot theory that light always traveled at the same speed. He was well-respected, and so his peers didn't outright laugh at this theory, but because it conflicted with the world as Newton had laid out, they gave it little attention. Maxwell died the year Einstein was born. Then two American scientists in Ohio decided they wanted to understand how the luminiferous ether worked. So they devised an experiment to measure the speed of light from the sun to the earth. For half the year, the earth is moving away from the sun and the other half towards it. These two scientists, Albert Mickelson and Edward Morley, decided that they would measure the difference in speed between when the earth was moving away from the sun and when the earth was moving toward it. According to Newtonian physics, sunlight should have a higher velocity if we are moving toward it. Michelson and Morley thought this would help them understand how the ether worked. So Michelson devised an ingenious plan for a measuring instrument called an interferometer. And with the help of the famous inventor Alexander Graham Bell, the guy who invented the telephone, he was able to build it. Then Michelson and Morley went about their experiment and they were dumbfounded by what happened. Nothing they did, no matter how carefully they measured or how many times they repeated the experiment, and they did several times, changed the speed at which light was getting to the Earth from the Sun. This just wasn't supposed to happen. To illustrate this, let's go back to the Millennium Falcon for a second. Let's say, instead of throwing an egg, you want to shine a laser pointer in my eye to be a jerk. Unlike Michelson and Morley, you and I know that light always travels at the same speed. That speed is just under 300 million meters per second. For our purposes, we'll just call it an even 300 million. So this time, the Falcon, the fastest hunk of junk in the galaxy, is flying extremely fast, let's say 200 million meters per second. You're flying directly at me with a wry smile on your face. You shine your laser at me, aiming for my eye. You chuckle evilly, and Chewbacca yells. If you're flying at 200 million meters per second and the laser travels at the speed of light, which is 300 million meters per second, it should seem to me that the laser is coming toward me at 500 million meters per second, right? No. Because there is a cosmic speed limit. No matter how fast you fly in the Millennium Falcon when you shine that laser pointer at me, it will always fly toward me at 300 million meters per second. Even if you and Chewbacca started to fly away from me, if you shined that laser back in my direction, from my perspective, that light would be coming at me at 300 million meters per second. This was weird. The Mickelson-Morley experiment, instead of determining the nature of the luminiferous ether, pretty incontestably proved it didn't exist. So if it didn't exist, how did light travel through space? And more confusingly, why was it flying at the same speed regardless of our planet's velocity relative to the sun. Einstein was transfixed by this problem. He knew that the idea of light speed and Newtonian physics couldn't both be true. He spent hours thinking about the problem, trying to reconcile these two conflicting ideas. He aired his frustrations with his friend Michele Beso. At one point at Beso's home, he threw up his hands and yelled, I give up! But Einstein being Einstein, he simply couldn't let the problem lie. One day he was leaving work, riding a bus down the quaint streets of Bern, Switzerland. Directly behind him up the street was a large street clock, a famous icon of Bern. He recalled the thought he'd often entertained. What would it be like if he were riding on a beam of light? He then imagined the streetcar racing away from the town clock at the speed of light. If he were to turn around and look back at the clock, it would appear to have stopped because light from the clock wouldn't be able to catch up to him yet his wristwatch would continue to tick away normally. This idea struck a chord. Einstein later said, quote, a storm broke loose in my mind. Suddenly, he started to understand the universe in a way no one had ever understood it before. It shattered the brightest thoughts ever produced by the human race. But amazingly, it was only one of a myriad of subjects that Einstein spent his time contemplating. Historians called 1905 Einstein's Annus Mirabilis, which is Latin for his miracle year. Because in one year, at the age of 26, he wrote four papers that would ultimately be some of the most profound scientific publications ever written by anyone. Ever. I won't go into great detail on all these papers. We could get completely lost in the weeds with this. But but here's a basic rundown. One was on what's called Brownian motion. So nearly 80 years before this time, a Scottish botanist named Robert Brown was looking at tiny grains of pollen through a microscope. In a tiny drop of liquid on the pollen, there were countless little particles which were constantly moving. No matter how long Brown left the samples to settle, or how carefully he kept them away from vibrations or air disturbances or whatever, they stayed constantly in motion. He had absolutely no idea what was causing this motion, and it remained one of the most interesting unanswered questions in science. Of course, Einstein wasn't going to let an unanswered question go unnoticed. He published a paper called On the Motion of Small Particles Suspended in a Stationary Liquid as Required by the Molecular Kinetic Theory of Heat. I dare you to repeat that three times fast. This paper provided empirical evidence for the existence of of atoms, which had until that point only been theoretical. More than that, it offered scientists a way to actually determine the number of atoms in a given sample. And he was just getting warmed up. Another paper was entitled, On a Heuristic Viewpoint Concerning the Production and Transformation of Light. The shorthand is Einstein's paper on the photoelectric effect. Working from a theory begun by Max Planck, that famous physicist we mentioned earlier, Einstein suggested that light moved in discrete packets, what Planck called quanta, of energy, much like electricity. It, in part, started to explain how light could move through space without needing the made-up concept of luminiferous ether. It accounted for how light could act both as a wave and as a particle. This allowed for the invention of, among a lot of other things, television. So, thanks for that, Einstein. It refined Planck's ideas further and established the basis of what was to become quantum theory. Einstein's paper entitled, Does the Inertia of a Body Depend Upon Its Energy Content, contained what is absolutely the most famous physics equation of all time. It's the first thing you think of when someone uses Einstein's name. Know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's E equals MC squared. This deceptively simple equation says something absolutely amazing. All matter is energy waiting to happen. All energy can become matter. The letters in the equation stand for the following. E is equal to energy. M is mass. And C is the speed of light. Because mass times the speed of light squared is a preposterously gigantic number, it means the potential energy resting at the heart of every last Adam in your body, in your pet cat, and in the water you last drank, in everything, is beyond imagining. Here's a quote from Bill Bryson's A Short History of Nearly Everything on this subject. Quote, You may not feel outstandingly robust, but if you are an average-sized adult, you will contain within your modest frame no less than 7 times 10 to the 18th power joules of potential energy enough to explode with the force of 30 very large hydrogen bombs, assuming you knew how to liberate it and really wished to make a point. Everything has this kind of energy trapped within it. We're just not very good at getting it out. End quote. This idea explained why stars could burn for billions of years without exhausting their fuel. It also laid the groundwork for minute understanding of the nature of atoms and how they stick together. Einstein's final paper, of course, was the one he wrote after his experience riding that bus in Bern. It was entitled, On the Electrodynamics of Moving Bodies, or as it's more popularly known today, The Special Theory of Relativity. The special theory of relativity is beyond most of us, but bear with me one last time. So you know there's a real simple equation for distance. You use it just about every time you set foot in a car. So distance equals speed times time. So if I were going 10 miles per hour for 2 hours, guess what? 10 times 2 is 20, so I know I went 20 miles. Easy, right? But what if I were a little beam of light flying at light speed? No matter what, from anyone's perspective, I always fly at 300 million meters per second. Always. If that part of the equation doesn't change, can't change then it's a constant, not a variable. And in order for the rest of the equation to even work, the other two have to vary, not just the number, but the actual way we factor them. It means the distance and time have to change. And according to the theory of relativity, they do. Let's return to the Millennium Falcon one more time. Fair warning, this is going to get a little weird. So, remember when you were shining that laser at me? You were flying 200 million meters per second, and you shined the laser at me, which came at me at the speed of light, which is 300 million meters per second. From my perspective, that light only flies 300 million meters per second, no matter how fast or slow you're going. We already established that. Here's the mind-bending thing for you. To you, that light is flying away from you at 300 million meters per second. Light, no matter what, no matter the relative perspective, always travels at the same speed. How can it do that? It does that by slowing down time and distance. Seriously. So let's say I'm on Tatooine, and you decide you need to fly to the Death Star to save some weird princess you claim you heard about from a walking trash can your uncle bought you. I think you're nuts, and I tell you to go on without me, but to send me a postcard once you get there. The Millennium Falcon's hyperdrive is broken down, so you can only fly at 99.9% the speed of light. You fly to the Death Star, which is 5 light years away, so, of course, it would take you about 5 years to fly to the Death Star, which would leave you plenty of time for weird monster chess. By the time you get there and send me a space telegram, you'll have aged 5 years. Me? I'll have aged 110 years. I could try to explain this further, but, but this is a history podcast, not a science podcast. If you'd like to learn more, I'd highly encourage you to go to YouTube, where there are literally hundreds of really great videos that explain this better than I ever could. Suffice it to say, according to Einstein's special theory of relativity, the faster you travel, the more mass you have, the shorter your length becomes, and weirdest of all, the slower time moves. Amazingly, scientists have absolutely, unquestionably proved that this is true. They've demonstrated it. This idea was elegant, simple, as simple as something like this could be, and in a few pages it undermined the human race's best understanding of the universe we live in. Central to this concept was the idea of space-time, that space and time were malleable, bendable, and were actually not just connected, but the exact same thing. Einstein sent off these papers for publication in a scientific periodical based in Berlin, entitled... Annalen der Physik. The curator of the publications was none other than the famous physicist Max Planck, one of the very few people on earth who could immediately recognize the radical genius in Einstein's ideas. His special theory of relativity was published in 1905, and no one really seemed to take notice. In the months and years immediately after he published his papers, Einstein kept looking for a more fitting job, though he was finally promoted to patent clerk level 2. He applied First, for a lecturing position at the University of Zurich. He was turned down. Then he applied to teach science at a local high school. They politely declined. But relativity was too radical and too correct to be ignored for long. Einstein started getting attention from the scientific community in Europe and started traveling to meet with scientific groups to explain his ideas. In 1907, he was writing a paper which clarified some of the finer points of relativity. He started to feel dissatisfied with it, though. Not because it wasn't correct, it absolutely was, but because it was too limited in its scope. It was called the Special Theory of Relativity for a reason. It only applied to objects traveling in a vacuum at a constant rate. It didn't account for acceleration, deceleration, and most importantly, it didn't account for gravity. He decided to start focusing on how gravity applied to his theory, and his hunt for the general theory of relativity began. Meanwhile, he continued to work at the patent office six days a week and continued his daydreaming thought experiments. One day, staring out a window of the patent office, he saw some men working on the roof of a nearby building. It's often been written that he saw a worker fall from the roof, but as reality often is, the truth was a little more mundane and boring. History is often a little more mundane than the myths we come up with. For example, we have no record that Newton ever got hit in the head with a falling apple. But Einstein, instead of seeing a worker fall, just merely imagined what it would be like for one of them if they fell from this roof. He realized that, to a falling man, he would feel weightless as long as he fell. Weight is a sensation we feel when we're pushed against ground by gravity. So if you're falling, and there is no ground to counteract gravity, you feel weightless. This began a train of thought that started Einstein toward his general theory of relativity. Meanwhile, he continued to meet and correspond with eminent scientists from all over Europe when finally, in 1908, he was awarded a doctorate degree from the University of Zurich and a year later, the same university offered him a teaching position. He was finally Professor Einstein. All this time, poor Mileva was secluded at home. In 1910, she had their second son, Edward. Einstein loved his sons, but he was anything but an attentive husband and father. He was not what we would consider a good family man. Einstein was absent more often than he was at home, and when he was at home, he tended to be withdrawn and distant, lost in some line of thought to which his family was not invited. He would sit for hours alone in a side room and play Mozart on his violin, an activity that helped him focus his thoughts. At other times, he'd contemplate while on long walks for huge parts of the day. To make matters worse, after one of his trips to Berlin, Albert reconnected with a cousin, Elsa, with whom he'd had a close relationship with as a child. The two started corresponding, and the letters quickly started to become romantic. Einstein had an unsurprisingly unique approach to, and attitude towards marriage, and he freely told Mileva about these interactions. It could only have hurt her. In 1911, Einstein had refined his thoughts about relativity. The special theory of relativity already established that the universe was made up of a moldable, bendable fabric called space-time. A helpful and often used metaphor is to think of a stretched piece of spandex, Einstein theorized that an object with mass would begin to bend spacetime, similar to laying a bowling ball on that stretched sheet of spandex. This would cause anything near it to be pushed toward it, not because the object is attracting you, but because spacetime is bent and pushing you toward it. If you were to put a pool ball or marbles on the spandex sheet around the bowling ball, they'd immediately start rolling towards the bowling ball. In this example, it's not the bowling ball that attracts the marbles and pull balls toward it. It's the warping of the spandex sheet that causes them to fall toward the bowling ball. This was a fascinating concept, and one that would rock the world of physics in ways none of his four animirabilist papers had. But like any theory, he needed to find a way to test it, to prove it. After years of thought, he finally figured out a way. Einstein hypothesized that if a massive object displaced space enough, the resulting gravity would cause light to bend. The nearest object massive enough to allow us to observe this phenomenon was pretty easy to find. It's the sun. But there was a problem. In order to see the sun bending light, Einstein suggested we look at the stars that were sitting just outside the sun's periphery. But because stars are pretty famously tough to see when the sun's out, especially the stars immediately around the sun. Einstein suggested astronomers observe the stars around the Sun during a total solar eclipse. If the Sun bent the starlight, the stars would ever so slightly appear to move away from the Sun. In 1912, he published an article with his plan, inviting any interested astronomers and astrophysicists to help him perform the experiment. He started writing to influential astronomers all over the planet, and he was met with silence. He was extremely frustrated, even a little bit depressed at the lack of help he was getting. Meanwhile, in Berlin, Germany's Kaiser Wilhelm II asked a leading scientist to form a group of eminent scientists and thinkers at the German University of Prague. This scientist was Max Planck, who immediately decided he wanted Albert Einstein to join the team. Planck and another associate boarded a train bound for Switzerland and once there, made their offer to Einstein. Einstein told the two men that he needed some time to consider their offer. He asked them when their train back to Berlin was scheduled to leave. They were leaving that same evening. So he told them to take the day exploring Zurich, and he would meet them that night at the train station. He'd be holding a flower. If the flower was white, he gratefully refused their offer. If it was red, it meant he accepted. As he often did, Einstein walked for miles to consider this problem. Maleva and his two sons wanted to stay in Switzerland. It was their home. Einstein himself had renounced his German citizenship years before and was reticent to leave his adopted homeland of Switzerland. He was finally a professor at a prestigious university, but Berlin was the commercial and cultural heart, not just of Germany, but of all of Europe. As a center for science, it rivaled London. The decision could not have been easy for him. Finally, Planck and his associates showed up at the train station to catch the evening train back to Germany. Einstein stood there, holding a flower. It was red. Einstein was moving to Berlin. I absolutely love Einstein's flair for the dramatic there. So after a long, frustrating wait looking for an astronomer to conduct his critical eclipse experiment, Einstein received a letter from a man named Erwin Finlay Freundlich. But if Einstein had been hoping for a leading astronomer, this wasn't it. Freundlich was a 26-year-old lab assistant at the Berlin Observatory. He recognized an opportunity to make a name for himself, and so he offered to do the experiment for Einstein. Einstein was thrilled to receive any response at all, so he invited Erwin and his newlywed wife Katia to visit him while the couple was on their honeymoon in the Swiss Alps. The two were taken with Einstein's friendly and self-effacing demeanor. He had a fantastic sense of humor, and even after he became world famous, he never seemed to get caught up in ego. He once wrote that there was, quote, A grotesque contradiction between what people consider to be my achievements and abilities and the reality of who I am and what I am capable of, Einstein's self-effacing humility and humor won over Freundlich and his wife much the way it was going to win over thousands and thousands of people as Einstein became more well-known. Freundlich proved willing to literally travel the world to help his newfound friend. Einstein and Freundlich discovered the next full solar eclipse would occur in the Crimea in Russia on August 21, 1914. When he returned to Berlin, Freundlich approached the director of the Berlin Observatory, his boss, and tried to convince him to sponsor a trip to Russia. The director flatly declined. Undeterred by this rejection, Freundlich wrote to an American astronomer named William Wallace Campbell, Campbell was the director of the Lick Observatory, which was perched on top of Mount Hamilton near San Jose, California. Lick Observatory sported the world's largest refracting telescope at the time. Campbell, even in these relatively early days of photography, had become an expert in astronomical photography and, most importantly for Freundlich, had pioneered techniques in eclipse photography. Freundlich explained the experiment, and Campbell was immediately intrigued. He quickly agreed to fund and join Freundlich in Russia to conduct the experiment. Everything seemed to be going Einstein's way. The critical experiment that was to validate his most important theories was set, and he had taken a position at one of the most prestigious science universities in the world. But shortly after moving to Berlin, the rift that had grown between Maleva and Einstein finally became too wide for Maleva to bear. Maleva took Hans and Edward and moved in with their close friend Fritz Haber, one of Einstein's fellow scientists. Haber kept trying to mend the relationship acting as a go-between, but the resentment between both Albert and Maleva had completely calcified. After several failed attempts at reconciliation, Einstein became convinced there was no way to continue on in the relationship. But he didn't have the money to support two separate households, so he proposed a deal. If Maleva would grant him a divorce and support herself and the boys in the interim, he would give her the cash reward when he won the Nobel Prize. Now, this was a lot of confidence, but as a physicist herself, Maleva knew well that this was a strong likelihood. She agreed. Their dear friend, Fritz Haber, accompanied Einstein, Maleva, and the two boys to the train station where Einstein bid farewell to his two sons. As they boarded the train back to Switzerland, Einstein burst into tears, which was a complete shock for Haber to see. Einstein's family had been torn apart. Meanwhile, Campbell arrived from America, toting with him his cutting-edge and hugely expensive astronomy and photography equipment. He joined up with Freundlich, and the two of them led a small team of astronomers to Russia to conduct the eclipse experiment. The eclipse was happening on August 21, 1914, The group left several months earlier to ensure enough time to set up and learn the equipment. As the eclipse drew near, Campbell and Freundlich decided to split into two different teams to increase their chances of success. Freundlich stayed in the Crimea and Campbell relocated near Kiev. But on June 28th, Archduke Franz Ferdinand heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary and his wife Sophie were visiting Sarajevo. A Bosnian assassin shot and killed both Ferdinand and Sophie. It was the spark that started World War I. Exactly one month later, Germany invaded Belgium and was at war with France, Great Britain, and Russia. In the Crimea, word spread of a group of Germans with spy equipment loitering in the nearby forests. The Russian military tracked down Freundlich and his friends, and they arrested them as spies. They were held as prisoners of war for several months, Near Kiev, though, Campbell, who was a neutral American, was allowed to continue with the experiment, and on the day of the eclipse, the sky was leaden with a thick blanket of cloud cover. Campbell's chance to see the eclipse was dashed. Because of the war, Campbell was compelled to leave most of his equipment behind in Russia, and he made the long trip back to California bitterly disappointed. Einstein, always prone to questioning authority, which was really what he did as a scientist, was appalled by the war and the nationalistic fever sweeping Germany. Even his close friends Max Planck and Fritz Haber enthusiastically backed the war, signing a proclamation of influential scientists and thinkers voicing their support. Disgusted, Einstein tried to write a dissenting proclamation condemning the war, but it only got three signatures beside his own, so he never published it. Einstein's close friend Fritz Haber was so supportive of the war that he joined the German army and he used his considerable talents as a chemist to conceive of new weapons. Haber pioneered the use of chlorine and mustard gases on the Western Front, which was one of the most infamous and diabolical methods of attack used in the entire war. I mean, World War I is famous for these gas attacks, and it was all done by Einstein's good friend. Haber justified the use of gas in logic that has been typical throughout history, he felt the more deadly the weapon, the more humane because it had the potential to shorten the war and therein probably save lives. But for Einstein, use of gas and the war in general were absolutely abhorrent. As the war raged, Einstein threw himself into his science, which had always given him an escape. Finally, after fine-tuning the math, he published his general theory of relativity on March 20th, 1916 but the world was so distracted by the war, it hardly noticed. There was an Englishman and astrophysicist named Arthur Eddington who was sent a translation of the theory from a friend in Switzerland. Eddington noticed. He was one of the leading minds of his day and immediately recognized the validity and significance of Einstein's paper. Eddington was a Quaker, a conscientious objector to the war, which was incredibly rare at the time. He was ecstatic, therefore, when he found out that Einstein was a pacifist as well. Eddington recognized an opportunity not just to support a fellow scientist and a revolutionary line of scientific thought, but to demonstrate how scientists from warring countries could set aside politics and cooperate in pursuit of human knowledge. He couldn't write to Einstein directly, but he learned about the eclipse experiment, and he was determined to conduct it. Meanwhile, back in the United States, William Wallace Campbell was licking the wounds he'd received from his failed attempt in Russia, and he was determined to conduct the experiment himself. His equipment still sat in Russia, though, so he started cobbling together improvised equipment to use in an impending eclipse that was expected in Goldendale, Washington in June of 1918. Almost the entire team from Lick Observatory accompanied Campbell on his trip north to Washington State, and it was pretty close by. On June 8th, with their jury-rigged equipment set up and ready, Campbell was distraught to find that once again, thick clouds rolled in, obscuring their view of the sun. Then mere minutes before the eclipse was scheduled to begin, the clouds parted slightly, which framed the eclipse. Campbell and his team quickly started to take photographs and measurements, hugely relieved. Once they returned to the observatory a few days later, they developed the photographs and Campbell assigned his leading astronomer to carefully analyze the findings. In November of that year, the war finally ended with Germany's surrender. Kaiser Wilhelm II abdicated the throne. In his notebook, Einstein wrote, quote, Class cancelled due to revolution. Unquote. Einstein was relieved the war was over, but he was anxious as well. The war had been difficult on the economies of most of Europe, especially Germany's. It was difficult for nearly everyone to make ends meet, not just for Einstein, but also his ex-wife Maleva and his two sons, who were still in Switzerland. His general theory of relativity was being well-received, but it was too radical to gain wide respect until it could be proven by experiment. And thus far, Campbell and the team at Lick Observatory were maintaining total silence about their results. Einstein desperately anxiously awaited the results and, with any luck, the resulting Nobel Prize that would improve the lives of his sons. A year later in 1919, Arthur Eddington, that famous British astrophysicist, headed to a small jungle island off the coast of Africa, a few months ahead of an expected eclipse. He and a small team built a telescope and the necessary photographic equipment in the middle of a jungle. On November 9th, just like with Campbell, Eddington was dismayed by heavy rain clouds obscuring the sky and pouring rain in torrents on their camp and their sensitive equipment. Eddington stared at his wristwatch in agony as the eclipse began. Total eclipses only last for roughly seven and a half minutes. Eddington thought he had completely missed his chance, but then the cloud suddenly broke enough to reveal the eclipse already in progress. Eddington's team leapt to action and they desperately started photographing. Now, here's the thing you need to understand about these photographs. This was not like taking a picture with a camera by like pressing a shutter. These photographic plates were huge, roughly the width of a sheet of paper mounted on this big wooden board and covered with metal. They had to be slid into place and then exposed for the exact right amount of time, carefully covered back up and then slid out all without jostling the telescope or the plates, a lot could go wrong. Unfortunately for Eddington, it did. As they developed the plates in a makeshift darkroom in this jungle camp of theirs, they found that most of the plates were completely useless. Luckily though, as the last few plates were developed, they were clear enough to use. Eddington started his analysis immediately. A year later in 1920, both Campbell and Eddington arrived in England to reveal their findings. Campbell stood in front of a meeting of the Royal Astronomical Society and regretfully reported that after close analysis, his team had concluded Einstein's theory had not been validated by their findings. It was a huge blow. However, Eddington cabled his findings to the same society. The starlight in his photographs had been bent. According to Eddington, Einstein's theory had been proven. Campbell heard this, and he frantically cabled his colleagues in California, telling him to delay publication of their findings until he could consult with Eddington. The newspapers of the day, though, caught wind of Eddington's results, and they started printing headlines that Einstein's theory had been validated, that Newton had been overturned. It was revolutionary. It was a fantastic story, and it really gripped the imagination of your average newspaper reader. The New York Times ran this article. The title was, Lights All Askew in the Heavens. This article, as was custom for the day, had several subtitles. Here's what they said. I love this so much. Men of Science More or Less Agog Over Results of Eclipse Observations. Einstein Theory Triumphs. And then, Stars Not Where They Seemed or Were Calculated to Be, But Nobody Need Worry. This is a hilarious side note, but for some inexplicable reason, the New York Times sent their reporter Henry Crouch to write the story. Crouch was the Times golf correspondent. He was hopelessly, hilariously out of his depth. And you can tell when you read the article that he did not understand at all what was happening. Somehow, he caught on to the idea that only a dozen men in the world could understand Einstein's theory, and he said so in his article. This concept actually caught on, and through this game of telephone that is the news media, the figure was taken down to three. This popular belief that only three people in the world could understand it became a fairly commonplace notion, and later on, a journalist asked Arthur Eddington if he was one of the three that understood Einstein's theory. Eddington had a dry sense of humor of his own, and is supposed to have responded by saying something like, Wait, other people can understand this too? Almost overnight, Albert Einstein became a household name. No scientist had ever had this kind of popular celebrity. His humor and his unwieldy hair made him really iconic all over the world, and his anti-war sentiment helped even former enemies forgive his German heritage. A lot of scientists, though, were really affronted at all this fanfare. They started to write rebuttals to Einstein's relativity. One writer in the New York Times called Einstein's theory humbuggery, which is amazing and I wish we would write a little more like these guys. The detractors, fairly, pointed out that Eddington's results were based on only a few viable photographs out of several and that Campbell had initially announced a negative result. For his part, Campbell was not comfortable staking his reputation on the thrown-together equipment the Lick team had used in Washington, so he was determined to repeat the experiment once again. Another eclipse was expected in Australia in 1922. No fewer than seven teams went to conduct this experiment. Campbell led the most prominent team, this time with carefully built equipment specifically crafted for this trip. Another team was led by none other than Edwin Finlay Freundlich, who still hadn't had the chance to perform the experiment, mostly because of the war. Demonstrating an impressive propensity for bad luck though, when the day of the eclipse came, Freundlich and his team were clouded out and unable to see the eclipse. Campbell and the Lick team, however, were a large distance from Freundlich's team, and for the first time in eight years, they had perfect blue skies above them as the eclipse began. Campbell and several other teams were able to get fantastic photographs. After several weeks' careful analysis, the conclusions were unanimous and undoubted. The sun's gravity was bending the light from the stars surrounding it. Einstein's general theory of relativity was proven, and scientific thought revolutionized. Later that same year, Einstein was awarded the Nobel Prize. Ironically, it was not awarded for relativity. It was given for his paper on the photoelectric effect, one of his four Annus Mirabilis papers from 1905. It's likely the Nobel Committee opted away from relativity because they didn't yet have conclusive results from the teams in Australia. Einstein, true to his word, gave the money to Mileva and his two sons, who desperately needed it and used it to get by much more comfortably in Zurich. One author has written, quote "As the creation of a single mind, relativity is undoubtedly the highest intellectual achievement of humanity." Unquote. The more I think about this, the more remarkable it gets. One twenty-something, wiry-haired bureaucrat staring idly out a window of an unremarkable office building daydreamed about the nature of the universe. The results of his daydreams radically upset the ways we view and understand our reality. They laid the foundation for modern physics, astronomy, chemistry, engineering, and a host of other innovations, fields, advancements, inventions. Einstein didn't overturn the thinkers before him so much as he built upon the foundation they laid. No man or woman in history acts in a vacuum. Newton, Planck, Brown, Michelson, Morley, and untold scores of thinkers, scientists, and wanderers paved the way for Einstein to create his world-changing theories. Brilliant as he was, Einstein owes his success in part to the builders who added their own bricks to the wall he eventually stood upon. Besides revealing mysteries of the universe, Einstein teaches us something else. He teaches us that questioning authority and prevailing thought, constant curiosity, and productive dreaming can literally change the world. But of course, that's just my perspective. And as we well know, perspectives are relative. Thanks for listening. Hey, this is Stu. Thank you so much for joining me this week. As always, if you have any comments, questions, or requests, please feel free to get a hold of me at Stu at BacktrackHistory.com. That's S-T-U at BacktrackHistory.com. Also, feel free to visit our website at BacktrackHistory.com. There you can see written transcripts of each of our podcasts and also see art and images that pertain to that week's subject. This week, I will also be including YouTube videos that will much better explain things like the theory of relativity than I ever could. Join us next week as we talk about Matthew Perry, not the Matthew Perry you might be thinking of. He was an American admiral who pulled his gunships into Tokyo Harbor, pointed his guns toward the city, and demanded that Japan open itself to the rest of the world. We'll see you next week.